Fandom University. Every other week, we deep dive into the topics we love and obsess over. Comics, novels, movies, sci-fi, and video games receive the elevated discourse they deserve. With your overworked TAs, Sean and Sergio. Hello, all you guardian and gentries out there. Welcome to another fabulous episode of Fandom University. My name is Sergio. And my name is Sean. We are wrapping up the Grant Morrison mainstream era arc with this episode. We'll be discussing multiversity. We'll be discussing both seasons of The Green Lantern. And we'll be talking with Greg Carpenter, author of The British Invasion, Alan Moore, Neil Gaiman, Grant Morrison, and The Invention of the Modern Comic Book Writer. All in all, a jam-packed to the gill show of Fandom University. You should expect nothing less from us. We are literally busting at the seams with content and thoughts and ideas. Like Morrison themselves. They are someone who I feel like there's only a there might be only three people in the comic book industry that could write a story like Multiversity. And and I only say that because I want to hedge my bets a little bit. <laughs> but if I was pressed, I would have to say that that they might be the only one to, to be able to do so. Multiversity is a multifaceted, dense, it's it's uh it's something. But before we get into that, I want to I want to do some plugs. I want to give some stuff away. What say yeah. you? I, yeah, I, I, let's do it. Let's give shit away. We're coming up on the end of this arc, which means we're coming up on the drawing for our giveaway. This time around, we are giving away a copy of Grant Morrison's Super Gods, their memoir slash ode to the superhero slash history of the superhero. It's one of Sean's holy texts. He reads it once every, what, four or five years or so? Yeah, I've, yeah, about that, that often, yeah. And can't recommend it enough. If you are a fan of Graham Morrison, obviously, it's something that you need to read. If you're a fan of just comic books in general, it's something that should be read. It'll make you a fan of Grant Morrison if you're not, I think. In addition to that, we'll also be giving away a copy of Grant Morrison and Dave McKean's Batman Arkham Asylum. There are two different versions that you could choose from if you are selected as the winner. There's the recently released paperback version that came out last year, which you would get almost immediately. We would send it to you as soon as your name is drawn. Or you can wait out until October when they release a brand new hardcover version. And it's super easy to be entered to win. All you have to do is follow us on Twitter. We are at Podcast, And then use the hashtag Podcast, and you're automatically entered. There's a neat little search function on the uh, on the Twitter box. So all we got to do is search for that, that specific hashtag and anyone who's used it during the Grant Morrison mainstream era arc is automatically entered. Yeah. So those we've got this figured out. We don't have everything figured out, but we got the giveaway figured out. We got we we know how to give shit away to people. We know that much. We know how we know how to bless y'all's game. We know that yeah. much. Yeah, like a couple of fanboy Robin Hoods. You're yes. Robin Hood and I'm Little John. Or would I be somebody else? I don't know. Friar Tuck maybe. Can we both be Friar Tucks? Can there Yeah, is there just enough? a couple of Friar Tucks. Just give it away nerd paraphernalia. That's what we do. That's what we do here at Phantom U. We can't and, and we love you for it. Yes. So let's go ahead and jump into Multiversity. It's a Multiversity is a nine-part meta series 
It's bookended by multiversity number one, multiversity number two, and in the middle are the sort of one-shot glimpses. Like Morrison has described them as almost like pilot issues. Like they they could they could serve as like the first issue for an ongoing series, but rather than that, they 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 help further the narrative that that they're that they're bringing forth with the story that they're writing um the like for example you've got society of superheroes conquers from the counter world which is a sort of like pulpy throwback to uh golden age uh world war ii era kind of um superheroes i guess yeah then you've got the the just which is almost like TMZ slash reality TV meets DC comics. Yep. <laughs> uh, Pax Americana, which is Morrison's take slash homage on the Watchmen. Thunderworld, which in, uh, is a story about Captain Shazam and the, the whole Marvel family. A Master Men, which is a really cool story about Superman. Instead of, uh, instead of the Kryptonian ship landing in smallville kansas it lands in nazi occupied czechoslovakia and he grows up to literally be the uber mensch the nazi overman uh then there's uh, ultra comics which kind of serves as the linchpin like it shows up like this comic book that is that you will that you as a reader will be reading shows up in the in previous issues like shows up in the just and actually plays a pretty heavy role in its plot uh, as like a haunted comic and then right. there's a uh and then there's a uh multiversity guidebook issue that uh there it's sort of gives you a rundown of the 52 different universes yeah and um yeah the occupants it's sort of like a, a guidebook basically it's exactly what it says but it also uh i think it advances the plot in in really important ways like like there's this uh there's one world that's it's the call like the they call them like the little the little league the little justice league or something they're like little like <laughs> not like l i l yeah yeah not like baby versions of uh like of, funko pops but yeah they're like little like funko pop versions of of the justice league and they're really adorable anyways so, uh batman that versions that universe's batman kind of figures out what's going on you know morrison always writes batman as the smartest motherfucker in the room and this is no different <laughs> And so I remember you told me that uh, that if need be, if I was crunched for time, I could skip over the gui- uh, the multiversity guidebook. And I'm glad I didn't because it I felt like it it really advanced the plot in important ways. But so that's what multiversity is. It's it's huge. It's it's dense. It's uh, it's multifaceted. It's like a like a diamond's eye view of the DC multiverse. So you don't see all of it at once you're just seeing these different spaces you can't see it all at one time except in this one big map in the middle of the book so to give you some context if you're unfamiliar with the dc multiverse so you know prior to the mid 80s dc had all sorts of different universes to to with different characters different variations on the same character you had you know, a dozen different types of Superman running around. And at a certain point, they thought that that got to be too unwieldy. And so they like kind of crushed it all down. 
with a huge storyline that they called Crisis on Infinite Earths. Right, which sort of reset DC at kind of um, sort of a ground zero so that new newbies could hop on. And, you know, that's the, the continuity wipe has sort of become a favorite tool of uh, DC in particular. Marvel, not quite so much, but... Um, every few years but at the time this was huge i mean the, the the company was about 50 years old and they were finally like enough we've got to like we got to scrape off some of the dross and uh so like all the universes except one were wiped out um uh, by the anti-monitor and i in our last episode when we were talking about all-star superman i had mentioned john burns man of steel miniseries and that was exactly that was what came out of that, like you said, continuity wipe. That sort of that became a jumping on point for new fans. You know, it right. didn't. That I was going to say that was my Superman. That's the Superman that I read. Um, you know, because that was the one that was still going when we started reading comic books. Uh, that particular version. And like you said, then DC has sort of gone back to this well several times. Like he had zero hour. You had. Um, so in, uh, I think it was in 2005, 2006, they had it at an event. So Jeff Johns, who's sort of um, one of the other DC heavy hitters, um, re- revamped Green Lantern. But uh, bef- before he even did that, I think he did um, an event book called Infinite Crisis, where basically he took the streamlined DC continuity that we'd had for about 15, almost 20 years at that point, and broke it and basically re uh, reintroduced the multiverse. Like the Superboy from the pre-crisis had actually broken the wall between universes and they had everything just kind of spilled out. Everything was back on the table again, um, which is sort of um, Jeff Johns's go-to move as a writer is to restore the Silver Age status quo, usually like bringing back Hal Jordan, uh, restoring Barry, Barry Allen to his position as the Flash, you know, basically resetting all the toys so they were kind of the same as they were when he was first reading comic books, I guess. Um, but, you know, he's a popular move. A lot of people liked it, you know, and, and I think a lot of good comics came out of it. So I, I have mixed feelings since it sort of, um, I liked the, the streamlined Superman. I liked the John Byrne Superman. And so like, uh, kind of seeing that scrubbed away, bugged me a little bit. But yeah, like you said, we've got a lot of good comic books to come out of it, including like this series, you know, Grant Morrison, they love the idea of the superhero. They love the mythology behind it. And to me, multiversity, like it, this allows them to examine that mythology in several different ways. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's a breathtaking, um, like the scope of the book is breathtaking in terms of taking and streamlining all these different continuities, all these different worlds and actually reassigning them basically like that guidebook in the middle is as far as I know, you know, it could have changed since then because this is a seven-year-old book, but at the time was sort of like taking these alternate universes and actually filing them into a system where you could see where everything was and where it stood in relation to everything else and who was watching it, you know, um, what happened to the monitors, how we end up with a multiverse to begin with, um, 
and then using that as sort of the the canvas to paint this giant story that allows Morrison to sort of almost be a, a storytelling polyglot, you know, using all these different methods of storytelling, you know, each each issue of the this of the meta series kind of um, you know. Uh, comes at the superhero concept from a different angle, which I think you kind of mentioned before. So like you've got your throwback to the golden age, you've got your gritty Watchmen light, you know, with Pax Americana. um, You've even got almost sort of a Miracle Man uh, riff in Ultra Comics, um, which, you know, sort of plays on the the Alan Moore, Neil Gaiman uh, reboot from the from the 70s, 80s. I think it was the early 80s, I guess, maybe late 80s. I, I, but anyway, I mean, even so much so as they kind of replicate Miracle Man's uh, origin, which is he's created in a lab yeah. uh, and the costume looks very similar, which I thought was it. You know, it's funny. Uh, Morrison definitely likes to take little pokes at Alan Moore and you can definitely see plenty of that in this book. You know, you let Alan Moore tell it and he's never heard of Grant Morrison. It has no clue right. who right. they are. Um <laughs> But, you know, I, I don't, you know, I think it's, it's a playful poke, you know, it's, and, you know, like, you know, uh, our, our conversation later on in the episode with Greg Carpenter, like their career is very much tied with Alan Moore's and Neil Gaiman's, you know, like these three sort of broke out around the same time and, and revolutionized, you know, what it meant to be a comic book writer. And have all sort of, whether they wanted to be or not, kind of been in each other's orbit off and on for the last 40 years almost now. Oh, yeah, exactly. And, you know, you, you mentioned that this was an opportunity for Morrison to sort of, you know, do some stuff and, and play with some ideas that maybe they wouldn't be able to with a monthly series. And he actually said it at one point a few years back, around the time that Multiversity was coming out, he did an interview And he said that he didn't, he said, I really, I didn't, he said, quote, I didn't really want to do monthly books anymore. And I found myself wanting to do some stuff outside of comics, TV and film stuff. So the timing to do monthly comics wasn't really there. And I can definitely see that. I can definitely see that somebody at the point of their, their, their career, like the point that, you know, where Grant Morrison is in their career, you know, and obviously we're going to discuss, you know, the, the Green Lantern uh, two seasons of, you know, how they're, how they're branded, but uh, for, for better or worse, those were uh, more or less, those were monthly books. Right. But right. They really haven't, you know, fucked around with monthly titles in quite a while. Like um, they've got their Wonder Woman Earth One project. Yep. Which is, you know, three one shot graphic novels over the course of like six years. Mm-hmm. Um, they've got a mini series that they did for Boom called Proctor Valley Road. And that's kind of been it for the past four or five years. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say they did. Ex- they did a run on action comics back in 2011, 2012. And then they did a run on Batman that lasted for almost six, seven years from like, that started pre infinite crisis. And I think finished up like 
somewhere in the middle of new 52. Um, it seemed like their priorities sort of changed. And they're like, I just, I want to tell these stories that I don't want to have to be, you know, ch- like tied down to like the, the grind of a monthly book, the, you know, the, not even just right. the grind, but you know, the, all the editorializing that comes with a monthly book. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And this wasn't Morrison's first riff on um, a meta series either. They'd done a meta series called seven soldiers of victory, which was almost like a, a warm up for this, I would say, although the, in terms of page length, they're probably similar, but in that series, which was Morrison's return to DC after <clears throat> writing X-Men for a few years, they, they had actually been writing this comic book in their own time without a contract, just because they were having fun with the idea and kind of wanted to do this thing. Uh, like the way they described it in Super Gods is I think a team book where the team never really actually gets together. So you have these like seven interlocking mini series. And then you also have the seven soldiers book ending. Um, and a lot of those ideas end up coming back to play in multiversity. Um, you know, and, and what's interesting about this book is you can sort of, you can also see Morrison's frustration with the mainstream of being part of the DC universe in a book like Final Crisis, which uh, came after Seven Soldiers and sort of builds on some of those same ideas. But, um, you know, they handed Morrison the event book, like the book that was going to be pushed hardest that year. And from what I understand, uh, it sold very well, but was very, very divisive in the fan community. And I can see why it's a tough read. I think it's a harder read than um, almost anything else Morrison's written, at least that I've read. Um, Like, I think it was, it, maybe the Invisibles runs up beside it, but the Invisibles I don't know. It, 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 it's not playing by the rules of the DC universe. So I feel like Final Crisis in some ways is even harder to parse. Um, but it also introduces a lot of ideas like, I, you know, the, 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 the cubes that show up in multiversity start there. Um, the, the idea of the bleed, the, the, the space between universes uh, and the ship that moves through it powered by song. Um, I can't, I don't think Calvin Ellis, the Superman of Earth 23 came out of that. I think he came out of Morrison's um, action comics run, but like you can sort of see Morrison kind of playing with these threads over the course of years and mostly except for Final Crisis and, and, you know, runs on Batman and stuff um, that what's interesting about the Morrison Batman too, and the Morrison action comics is that they aren't really interacting much with the other bat books you know the other bat books are sort of in that time period interacting with each other that's sort of that's sort of morrison's mo i mean if you yeah (laughs) if uh like you look at jla and like granted we discussed you know in their jla run superman goes from you know the regular costume that we all know to electric blue superman never splits into the red Superman. Yeah. <laughs> but then just goes back to like the regular red, uh, red regular blue. blue, red and yellow costume. So it definitely acknowledges what's going on in the Superman books, but isn't beholden to it. And X and their run on new X-Men, 
I don't know. Who knows what was going on in Uncanny X-Men at the time? Right. Like, I'm, I'm sure Morrison didn't know. <laughs> he didn't give a fuck. I think that this is sort of the ideal kind of project for, for Morrison. I think Morrison, as much as they love superheroes, also has sort of ground up against like the the machine essentially of of producing these books so i think it makes perfect sense that sort of letting them play with these things like what an interesting thing about multiversity is that you don't really get the mainline versions i don't think of any of the major dc heroes but you do get analogs from other worlds you know so you've got Calvin Ellis, Superman, you've got a female Aquaman, um, so on and so a forth. Very, very foxy aqua lady. Yeah, she really is. <laughs> um, you know, and also teaming up with like Captain Carrot, you know, who's <laughs> a cartoon yeah. rabbit uh, with like crazy muscles. Um, yeah, he's, he's one buff rabbit. He is, that rabbit is on roids. Yeah, <laughs> he's bigger than Superman. <laughs> I'm looking at a picture of him right now. Yeah, I, sorry. So I, I think that this sort of thing where Morrison kind of gets to go out and play with the outside of it, you know, get outside of everything and make everything inside it make sense, uh, you know, by its own rules. It's well, kind it, of the perfect thing, right? Well, they get to play with superheroes without and and, he, and, and they're able to do whatever they want with with those superheroes without you know having to you know i guess like pay the consequences of you know uh killing one off yeah or like you know like you know you can't you just can't do that in a superman comic book you can't do that in a batman comic book like okay well i'm gonna i'm gonna create make up my own batman (laughs) yeah i'll make up a vampire batman and superman or a nazi superman and uh the strangest (laughs) thing about the 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 strangest thing about the Mastermen issue where, you know, Superman is essentially a Nazi. Yes. Is that uh, Batman's character, it's like, whereas Superman, it's a almost, it's a complete 180. And you can right. see that, that internal struggle in him as he, as he grapples with, you know, what he's done and the far reaching consequences as well, you know, generations down the line. Uh, right. It seems like Batman's character isn't so much a 180 as it is like a slight pivot, <laughs> which I guess sort of, um, you know, speaks of Batman's like near fascist, I guess, ideologies. Or at least practices. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. The, the Batman. Um, and I, I think that speaks to Morrison's views about Batman. If you in super gods, which you should all enter to win because you want this book, if you haven't read it, especially if you're listening to this show, um, Morrison is in love with Superman and you can tell they love Batman too, but it's a different, more measured love. Um, it's definitely and you can see it in Morrison's action comics run too. In Morrison's action comics, they return Superman to sort of the golden age, Teddy Roosevelt in a cape mm-hmm. uh, roots. You know, they've got Superman wearing jeans and a t-shirt with a cape tucked in, which I fucking love. It's so cool. <laughs> um, 
And, and of course, DC immediately kind of scrubbed that away as soon as he was gone. And they even killed that version of Superman to bring back the John Byrne Superman into the rest of the, the new 52 later on. Um, nice. Because they, they, I don't think they knew what to do with it. <laughs> like, they didn't know what to do when Morrison was like, I'm done playing for now. But the, the way that they describe Batman is a defender of the status quo. I mean, it's a billionaire who hangs out with the police commissioner in his free time, right? That's the very first time you see Bruce Wayne is smoking in a room with a guy who runs the police in Gotham City, um, you know, defending rich people, beating up poor people. And, you know, I, I, whether that's intentional or not, it's baked into sort of the character. Um, well, like you so said, he, he defends the status quo. Like he... He believes that the system that is in place would it works. You know, it's it's very easy to argue that the system that's in place is inherently flawed. Right. He's trying to make the the system work the way it should, in theory, by rooting out corrupt politicians and police officers, um, and you know, replacing them with good men. You know, like Jim Gordon or Harvey Dent. Like that's kind of the thrust of the Dark Knight trilogy. Um, so, but, but even so, like, I, you know, I would argue that that the system in place is inherently flawed. It's not a matter yeah, yeah, of like exactly. of like moving like, you know, pieces here and there. Like it's, you know, the it's, you know, if you've got uh, if you've got a car that has an engine problem, you know, switching out the seats and switching out like cosmetic uh, items isn't like, you know, might it might, you know, look good. It might, you know, uh, might help, you know, some aspects of it. But eventually it's going to break down. Right. Yeah, I, I would agree. And I think that that's sort of Morrison's take. And, and that Superman started out as a revolutionary and then got co-opted by the World War II propaganda machine and kind of never came back from that in terms of, you know, being like a, a another defender of the status quo. So much so that by the time you get to Dark Knight Returns in the 80s with Frank Miller, Superman is the red state defender and Batman is the libertarian like liberator to be redundant about it, um, you know, of, of the common people, um, which is a very Reagan era uh, riff on Batman, of course. But um, yeah, and, yeah and, and I, Superman. I, I think that's a good commentary. Yeah. And that Superman. Yeah. And it's just the idea that like no one can be this good. No one, like, yeah. Yeah, there, there's got to be, there's something's got to give eventually. Um, but yeah, multiversity is. I feel it's it's a it's a story that only Grant Morrison could tell. One, I feel like the the amount of talent that they have, and like we said, like we were discussing reading their later work as opposed to their earlier stuff. It's like seeing a master at work. It's a master, someone who's mastered the medium. And it's also another uh, multiversity is a story that can only be told in comics, which is something that I absolutely love. You know, when you're discussing adaptations, either uh, a comic book being turned into a movie or a video game being turned into a movie or a book being turned into a movie, whatever, or a TV show, whatever it may be, people get so hung up on, like, you know, oh, well, this is different and that's different. I have already experienced and enjoyed this story in, in this fashion. Like, give me something new. Like, right. And I honestly, I, I, I wouldn't even care if it's radically different. As long as it's good. Yeah. As long as it's good, what does it matter? I mean, right. you look at a, an example um, like Stephen King's The Mist. Like Frank Darabont changed the, changed, radically changed the ending. 
for the better in many opinions and many yeah. opinions and including Stephen King's opinion, like yeah. that ending is such a gut punch and you know, didn't say true to the original, but if you're going to adapt something to a different medium, take advantage of that medium, change the story to make it better. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I think we've seen sort of, um, you know, the, the logical endpoint of the literal frame by frame adaptation with the Zack Snyder Watchmen, which I, I know a lot of people like, and I've got sort of a soft spot for, but I would also argue could have been more of an adaptation and less of a frame by frame. Like I mean, it does change a couple of things. Yeah. It's, it's a translation. That's like sort of the taking the spirit, I guess, of the, the Frank Miller, Robert Rodriguez, Sin City, and then putting that on the biggest comic book of all time. Um, or not maybe the biggest of all time, but the the most critically well-regarded superhero story ever told. Well, I thought that I thought that the Sin City movie was a like a perfect marriage of adaptation and translations. Like Sin City had a very distinct visual style, and they were able to bring that style to the screen while also still making it a, a movie. You know, they didn't cinematic, yeah. They didn't they weren't beholden to well, this is exactly how it looked in the comic. This is the exact shot that they use. We need to do the exact same thing in the movie. They didn't always right. do that. Whereas, you know, Zack Snyder, he seemed absolutely intent on doing that, on literally taking the comic book page and putting it on the big screen. And it leaves yeah, it, yeah, yeah and say what you will, if you like it, if you dislike it, I felt, you know, it, it was soulless. There was, there was nothing, like the multiversity is a story that can only be told. Like Grant Morrison is figured out how to use they they have figured out how to use the comic book medium to its utmost yeah and th- this is literally a story in where like we said there was a, an issue of the comic that the reader will read puts itself into the storyline right and i mean that's i mean i i can't ima- i can't imagine like that's something like if if it was in TV or film, it'd be like some David Lynch shit. Like <laughs> I can only think. And, right, right. But uh, can you imagine David Lynch doing this with su- even a Superman from an alternate universe? Like, I think that that that's part of what makes it so delightfully comic book too. Is it's like this David Lynch shit, but like with marketable with, children's characters. Yeah, with, you know, with you know, buff men and women in tights. Right. You know, like you said, a giant talking superhero rabbit. Right, who's in better shape than either of us will ever be. But it's because he has those power carrots. That's the only reason. Man, and if I could like, get my hands on some of those power carrots. Just, just get me at least one power carrot and I'll be good. All right? So, yeah. but I, don't, I don't have them, so. I'll just take one nibble. One nibble a day for the rest of my life. Let's go ahead and finish up our conversation on Multiversity by discussing what was your favorite issue of, this, of the series. So... I think the guidebook is the part that I pour through most often, but that... that I... As far as like the actual narrative goes, probably Pax Americana. The guidebook is easy, is is fun because there's so much. It's it reads like almost uh, like a like one like, of those DK encyclopedia books that they make for pop culture stuff. Yeah, I was gonna say like a almost like a Dungeons and Dragons book that has all sorts of lore yeah. inside of it. Um, in addition to like the stuff like you know how to play the game and all that, but. You know, and this and this uh, the the guidebook, like I said, furthers the narrative a little bit, but also includes all that like you know cool like um, minutia stuff. 
but you're saying Pax Americana. I think so. Just as far, like just the visuals of it, the, the, the vibe, the way it looks, the, the, the meta commentary on Alan Moore and sort of Moore's nihilistic vision of what superheroes are. Um, like, I think it's just a perfect example of Morrison's ability to change tones and adopt different voices, which not every, that, which is another example of what a gifted artist they are. Uh, because each book in this series is so uniquely its own and uh, having the different artists helps for sure but like the voices are in play and something about that one I don't know just that I, I think Morrison's at their best when they're teamed up with Quietly um, and I so I think that that really helps because Quietly of course does the Pax Americana issue um, and and the fact that Morrison's playing with the Charlton characters that Moore wanted to use and didn't get to use for Watchmen just makes it even better, I think. Um, but I also really, really like the uh, Secret Society issue on my second read through. There's just, I really like the, the what's his name? The Adam wearing like the, 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 the college professor sweater vest, yeah. you know, and his blue mask to like fight criminals. I thought that was kind of cute. How about you? Pax Americana definitely, I feel, is the best. I mean, it I mean, it won all sorts of awards. Like that not only like did this meta series get nominated and win awards uh as a whole, but that specific issue was highlighted. Um, I think that it's of all the uh everything about the series, like the story, the the writing, and then Quietly's artwork. I think it's the it's the perfect combination of everything. Everything comes together, and it's sort of like it's in the middle as well of the series, which I think is is obviously I I wouldn't think I, I would say is intentional. Probably, uh, especially playing with Alan Moore's sort of uh, obsession with formalism too. Exactly. Which, yeah. Uh, so I think Pax Americana is definitely the best, and I really enjoyed it, um, but. I really liked Masterman. I would say Pax Americana is the best and Masterman is my favorite because, you know, and it's really simple to just cast, you know, to say like, oh, let's just, let's make Superman a Nazi and and write a story like that. Um, But Morrison does something really unique with it and has something to say with it. You know, Superman is nigh immortal. You know, he crash lands in Czechoslovakia in the 30s, the late 30s. And by the present day, you know, 60 years later, you know, he still looks the exact same. Yeah. <laughs> didn't Jim Lee illustrate that one too? Yeah. It was, yeah it was, and it's I didn't know. gorgeous. <laughs> yeah. Like I was like, I mean, say what you want about Jim Lee's art, but that, that dude can draw a Superman. I look great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I, yeah. Um, I, it's just a gorgeous issue. Yeah, I'm looking at the pages on my computer screen while we're talking about this. So I'm just like, yeah, that's that's pretty hot. <laughs> it by no means sympathized Nazis, but it grappled with that idea of, you know, do the ends justify the means? Because they talk about how, you know, everyone is happy. Like, in, in it, you know, by the time it gets to the present day, it's essentially a utopia. And they've even, you know, there's a line that that hints that, you know, there's sort of some uh, like backpedaling on like uh, Hitler's personal views views and practices concerning, you know, marginalized groups of people. 
like his like his uh, uh, eugenic like his, his his obsession with eugenics and the subsequent genocides of certain groups of people like you know Jews, a Romani, uh, you know handicapped, gay and lesbians, yeah. And so like there's alliances like okay like we've you know we've definitely we like I guess the Nazis have have moved beyond that and have sort of like you know kind of like well like sort of and I think it's you know there's it's analogous to the you know um, the um, United States history with slavery. I was about to say the same thing. Yeah, it's something that obviously like you know it didn't happen by accident. Very much complicit in it, and it's something that we you know, obviously want to, uh, not like, you know, want to say like, that's definitely in our past and won't ever happen again, but it's still the specter of it still looms large. Yeah. It's, it's so deep in our culture that even now, you know, 150 years after the end of slavery, we're still digging out the psychic damage that it did not only to, you know, the the people in the day to but everyone. all of their descendants yeah. yeah like like on you know to the descendants of the slaves to the descendants of the slavers you know and all of it and just the cultural attitudes and stuff and it's you know i look at stuff from even 20 30 years ago and i'm like how could we have been so blind you know yeah. or even 10 years ago sometimes so um but but yeah it's like you can't walk that back and pretend it didn't happen yeah and so i thought I thought Morrison's commentary on on that in Masterman was, you know, just so well done and well handled. Like I said, it, it could have very easily been a like, okay, let's you know, let's make him a Nazi and see what happens then. That'll be fun. Right, right. But rather, Morrison does that. Usually, that sort of idea is, is you know, that's the right. Just a just a straight inverse, like, oh, Superman's a bad guy. Yeah. Exactly. Um, whereas you can still see the personality of Kal-El in this just warped through the eyes of like Nazi Germany. You know, it's like I, I feel like there's still that same core personality, but warped by the world, you know, shaped by the world that he grew up in. Yeah, um, for sure. Because there, there are still heroic impulses, and he definitely seems to doubt a lot of what he's done or is doing. Um, he questions it for sure. Yeah, which um, you know, I, I think in the 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 version that you're alluding to, the you know the 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 usual comic book version, that wouldn't be the case, right? Um, it would just be, oh yeah, he's a straight bad guy. You know, Batman would probably be the one to take him down, right? Instead of just being like, nope, he's still just Batman. Yeah, he's just still sort of Batman. <laughs> <laughs> Yikes. Yeah, for um, sure. But yeah, it's a multiversity in uh, in a somewhat of a nutshell. I've never, I've been reading comics for just about for about 30 years about three decades and i don't i have never read anything like this yeah same and i and i mean and i mean that as a compliment it is pure joy like you can see an artist having the most fun with their you know medium of choice and their genre of choice you know so superhero comic books which isn't to say that i want this sort of work all the time like this is the only type of comic i want to read simply because like i said i don't think that there's really anyone besides morrison that could 
that that could pull this off. No, but it, it I think it's it's sort of like Watchmen or um, you know it, it, any of the 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 signature graphic novels, comic books from the last 30, 50 years. Like it's an example of what an artist can do in the medium um, that they're not just limited to normal, you know, what we accept as sort of the normal superhero affair, which I clearly love, but I also like, when I see something like this, it's like that breath of fresh air or something. It's like, oh yeah, okay. We can also do this. Um, And like you said, it's not that you want everybody to do this. It's more like you want artists to do their best work. Morrison seems to be at their best when they're able to do pretty much whatever they want without any constraints, without any, without, with limited editorial oversight. And, you know, multiversity feels like that might, it it might be the, like the shining example of that. Whereas (laughs) JLA, you know, still sort of plays by, by the rules. And it it does so very well, yes. Yeah, exactly. And New X-Men sort of still plays by the rules. Like they 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 push they push the envelope of what, you know, what X-Men can be or could be, what JLA can or could be. But, you know, it, it's they, they play by the rules. It seems more they love like they obviously love the the superhero like idea, like the mythology of the superhero. You know, which is why like something like multiversity is is so good and yet can be so weird. And now that we've talked about multiversity, let's move on to Grant Morrison's what is uh, Liam Sharp, the penciler for this work, claims to be their last their last work for DC ever. Uh, their, their Green Lantern seasons one and two. Although, I mean, Liam Sharp said that and I, like, I'm literally holding a copy of Superman and the Authority number one in my hands right now. You can't see it through the podcast, but trust me, I wouldn't lie to you. I've never lied to you before, uh, students of Fandom University, and I shall not start now. But uh, I think uh, what Liam meant by that, uh, we're on a first name basis because we're cool like that. I think sure. what my old buddy Liam meant by that is this is probably Grant Morrison's last um, traditional like monthly title. And even though it it it, it might have read more like we we're talking, we we're discussing earlier before recording, uh, it felt more like a maxi series. Like two separate maxi series, you know, twelve two separate twelve issue series. Um, I mean, it, it combined. It's about it's like a it's a two year run on one character. So I don't. Th- I think what Liam meant is that we won't ever see that from Gat Morrison again. And honestly, I'm okay with that. What what I've noticed with Morrison's um, longer runs on stuff is that they tend to. I don't want to say lose interest, but they tend to be formally restless which I think shows in this series um, and is why there are like five different Batman series spread out everywhere, you know, over their run uh, as Greg Carpenter will talk about in our interview in the future, which uh, uh, hasn't happened for you yet, but is in our past. Um, it's some, some, yeah, Grant Morrison shit going on exactly in the recording of this podcast. Yeah. This is a 5d podcast. You're welcome uh, students. Um but yeah, I, I think that they tend to, you know, if you look at their their recent runs, like Action Comics feels very diffuse, like it's got a strong start and then it kind of seems to meander a little bit. Um, so I'm thinking like the mini or the graphic novel is probably the better format for their particular, whatever you want to call it, je ne sais quoi. 
Yeah, I, I mean, it's um, throughout the 24 you know, main issues of Green Lantern and then there, there's the Black Star stuff. Um, it, it, it felt like Morrison had, you know, something to say sometimes and it didn't feel like they had something to say all the time. Whereas, you know, their run on New X-Men the entire the entire thing felt like a cohesive whole yeah and it felt very immersive and vital from issue to issue like you were dragged along by the force of the narrative and the characters which is not the case with this book yeah and i mean and there are parts that i really liked uh and i i i kind of felt the opposite you know you described action comics as sort of you know starting off strongly and then uh, sort of meandering toward the end, toward the middle and the end I thought this was the exact opposite. I thought this sort of like I was bored for lack of a better term to start the series off to start season one off and about midway through toward the end of season one, beginning of season two, for me, it kind of picked up and then about middle season two, it kind of dragged again. And then I thought it ended pretty strongly. Yeah. If you, if, if, if some anthropologist were to go through our texts from the last few weeks and look I think you would. Which I, see I don't like, doubt what it would happen. I mean, will happen. Yeah, yeah it, it, it will happen for sure. So one of you in the future listening to this is studying us. I'm this sure this is going to be some uh, Canticle for Leibowitz type shit where people are reading <laughs> like our text and trying to parse out exactly like, you know, what it means when it really is just, you know, stuff that we bought at the comic book shop and, right. and, and ideas Talk about-, about girls and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. But yeah, I mean, you could actually chart that exact like interest rise and dip in my reading experience, which I think was very similar to yours. Cause like, I'll text you and be like, oh my God, I'm so bored about this. And then two days later, holy shit, this is getting good. And then two days later, Never I'm mind. bored again. Yeah. That <laughs> didn't last long. Yeah, that it really didn't. Um, and that I, I would say without having read all of their work, this feels like one of their m- least consistent runs of anything that i've read like yeah yeah. i don't know if it's a lack of interest or what and you know like that might be um i'm like i'm not sure of the particulars behind them deciding to take on this project but maybe it's something they figured out in the middle of it and that's why told his collaborator liam sharp whose pencils are actually amazing like they're yes the artwork in this uh in and Green Lantern season one and season two, fucking incredible. Breathtaking in its scope and variety and beauty. Like not only does it do a lot of things, it does them all really well. Liam Sharp is doing, is taking on so many different styles and doing them all so well. And I can't imagine like how hard this dude worked to to get these pencils done in time. Yeah, seriously. Um, and I think he didn't just do the pencils, did he? I think he also did like some of the inking. And yeah, stuff. he did. The, I think he did the coloring as well. Yeah, I did uh, everything but the lettering, I think. And so he sent out he sent out a tweet, which we retweeted uh, on our on our account. And he tells somebody that that Grant Morrison is done is done after this that 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 they're that, that this is their last work for DC. And you know, I I'm kind of disappointed, and well, 
and obviously, like I said, like I've got Superman and, and the authority number one in my hand, I, I physical copy. I went to a comic book store and everything. Right. Obviously, they're not done with DC, but, you know, they might they might be done, like we said, with the more traditional monthly title. And it, you know, for someone whose work that we enjoy so much that you are such a fan of that I love as well. You know, it's it's a little disappointing to see to see them go out, you know, in not, you know, not in bad fashion, but sort of, you know, a little like pedestrian fashion. Yeah. Yeah. It, it almost felt like reheated leftovers. No, I mean, and that's the thing. There's I guess that the the biggest fault is that I am judging this book against Grant Morrison's other work. Like against some other, you know, another comic book writer, it might have been great. Like this is a fantastic comic book, but Grant Morrison's work elevates so much higher than your standard comic book, and I don't feel that this did that. Yeah, and I, part of me wonders how much of it is the character at the middle about of the, you know, of Hal Jordan himself because. I feel like Morrison has a great handle on what makes Superman tick and what makes Superman special. And also with Batman and, and at the bigger macro level with the justice league, he definitely seemed to, but his justice league didn't have Hal Jordan in it. He had, um, Kyle it had Rainer. Kyle Rayner. Yeah. And I just don't know that. So in super gods, Morrison talks about, the pre so you know the the sort of the defining run of green lantern and starts in the early 70s late 60s with dennis o'neill and neil yep. adams yep and morrison actually wasn't a fan of that morrison liked the green lantern before that who was sort of a kerouac you know road bum uh you know trying to find enlightenment on the road and can definitely yep. see Morrison trying to bring that back in this run because they've taken Hal out of the the regular test pilot gig, put them back on the road, like girl in every town, yep. you know, yep. um, not not tied down to anything or anyone. Loves you know being moving around, very restless. Um, and also, there is a lot of um, not a lot, but there's definitely a current of Hal's developing enlightenment across the two seasons i would say it's an inconsistent thread but it's there um so i i think that morrison was interested in exploring that again but to me and maybe maybe that's the problem is that for me i have read a lot of green lantern comics because of the sort of defining run that jeff johns did a few years ago and pete peter tomasi on the green lantern core book you know, that was a, a run that went on for like almost 10 years, I want to say, um, and really sort of set for me what Green Lantern is, um, especially Hal Jordan Green Lantern. And this book, I have no frame of reference, like the 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 supporting cast is completely different. Like there's no Kilowog, there's no any of the other Lanterns. Um, who were part of the core that I remember anyway, like there, there are some recurring new younger lanterns, but they're all as far as I can tell, they're either really old supporting characters who've been dug out of the dustbin or they're new characters. And I didn't, I didn't bother to look it up because I was just so 
uh, tired yeah, <laughs> by I mean, the time, just all the reading we've had to do for this. Well, not even that, but there's just, um, I mean, there's a lack of connection there with those characters and, um, they don't grab you. They don't, um, they, there's no like sense of importance with them. I mean, they're, they're treated just like, you know, like, like stock background characters and, uh, at least in my opinion. Um, but yeah, no, I would agree. No, and you're right that that how Jordan goes back into his nomadic ways, which is interesting because um, that ties into the the finale of the series, in which um, he's kind of held the task for, or he's accused of like um, holding this civilization, this nomadic civilization, in sort of like stasis, so that it stays in this sort of medieval sort of swords and sorcery. Dungeons and Dragons right. sort of like a, a motif environment, um, sort of like for his own, you know, for his own vacation. Yeah. That's where he goes for yeah, R&R. For his, like shits and giggles. And so it's just interesting that, that he, like he's living this nomadic style and yet, and, and then keeps this nomadic culture like in stasis. It's like, they're both like uh, refusing to evolve. Um, but so he ends up and so that's and so that story starts off with uh with the young guardians uh from oa telling him hey uh we have this problem that we need you to solve and uh we'd appreciate it if you did it but we're gonna have to ask you to leave after this like it's like your boss coming into your job and say like hey we got this big project that's due next friday i need you to do that and then after you're done with that you're fired (laughs) and how jordan responds like i think any of us would as uh fuck you i quit right now um but cooler heads prevail he decides to um to 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 tackle the problem and it's uh it's hector hammond who it's hector hammond who uh is revealed to be the 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 big bad at the end which uh before we were were recording you sort of equate that to uh morrison's new x-men run where zorn is revealed to be magneto Exactly, where there's sort of a, a a classic villain pulled out in the finale for the for the big finish. Um, although, of course, like everything, every comparison between the X Men and uh, Green Lantern runs, it works so much better in X Men, I think. But Magneto is also just a more interesting character than Hector Hammond, whose like personality is that he's jealous of Hal Jordan and he has a big head. Like that is yeah, like his entire character. He's like, oh, like oh, I'm like I'm Hal Jordan, but everything went wrong for me, and I'm like, all right, that's not. I mean, that's like a like an '80s like sci-fi trope like i guess like it's it's (laughs) it seemed a little like like pedantic the dark doppelganger kind of yeah and so he's revealed to be the the villain how jordan basically tells him like hey like i will like you know we'll go ahead and call it even stevens i'll give you the power to keep doing to continue this like this uh this world and but right. you have to get out of here. You have to you have to get the scram. And so they take the deal. He goes and tells the young guardians, I've got this done. And they're like, hey, we appreciate that. And you know what? We're maybe we're a little too harsh before. Maybe you can stick around. And how Jordan says, fuck you, and dips out, <laughs> flies away into the space stars. 
that is a great final page of him just sort of soaring off. Yeah, like and um, like the the rest of the core are talking to him, and then it ends with like Hal, and then turn the page, and it's him flying off. Uh, I kind of felt that like metatextually that was in and, and super gods and, and you've brought this up before that, that morrison uh uses what they call fiction suits where they write themselves uh into the story somehow like you know like and it's not and i mean in in animal man like it was like one for one it was 100 percent like you know it was grant morrison in in the title but but right. it was you know but and like invisibles there are parts of grant morrison in king mob there are parts of grant morrison in uh lord fanny right you can also see a lot of morrison and morrison's father in all-star superman so uh, sorry just butting in with a little bit more of the fiction suit uh ephemera and i feel that i, I feel that they employ that again in in this and they use how jordan is a skin suit and the young guardians being DC, and I mean, maybe DC is telling like, "Hey, like we appreciate everything that you've done for us, but you know, after this, you can kind of like we're we're going in a different direction." And so he, they do something like they they do this, this like relatively well received Green Lantern run, and they're like, "Oh, maybe you can stick around if you'd like." And Morrison says, "Like you know what? I'm gonna go do TV. I'm gonna go." Uh, write books uh, according to the Substack conversation. And we tweeted about this as well that they had with Jonathan Hickman. They wrote a book and it will be out next fall. So like an actual like prose novel. So that is very exciting news. And so, and they also said that they are working on two TV series. Uh, didn't clarify whether one of those was the already announced Invisible show that there hasn't been any news on in a couple of years, or if that, or there are two others and the Invisible is the third. Well, I would say that their graduation from superhero comics, if that's what you want to call it, is well-deserved. I think that they've definitely put in their time in the trenches, so to speak, paid their dues with the superheroes and, and, you know, seem to have genuine fun doing it. Um, but also like at a certain point, you know, it's okay to, you know, to, to, to move on to, to bigger and more lucrative things. You know, I, I don't think that comics writers are paid a whole lot. You know, maybe Morrison being like sort of top tier probably makes more than than most superhero comic book writers. But like, I'd say, you know, the they, you know, if they've got nothing else to say about the DC heroes, it's good. You know, like I I want to see their original novel, you know, or their TV shows or whatever they're most passionate about showing me because Green Lantern doesn't feel like an especially passionate project. There so it like is. If it, that there yeah. it is, right there. Like I, yeah. I mean, I think that you nailed it on the head. All Star Superman. You felt like this was Morrison writing something that they cared about. Yeah, or in Multiversity, even. Yeah, like just that that sense of excitement of complete engagement isn't there. And I, it was the first time I've read a Morrison comic and been completely unengaged for the most part like except you know and then I would be like oh there's a spark of life and then it would kind of 
Peter out. And I feel awful saying that because I, I mean, I've, I, you know, this person is my, one of my heroes full stop, you know, not just comic book heroes, just heroes. Um, and, you know, it, 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 it's kind of a bummer to end the reading on sort of a lesser work, but, um, but I think it also draws into relief just how good the best of their work is. No, exactly. And as well. that's, that's what I was talking about earlier is that any other writer puts out this Green Lantern in season one and season two. And it's like, wow, like that's, you know, what a solid work, you know, Morrison does it. And it's like, it's not as good as what I, what I have been like, you know, uh, trained to expect from Morrison's like someone of Morrison's caliber. Yeah. Yeah. And, because even like there's a lot of times where I didn't know like what was going on, but because yeah. I was so uh, unengaged, I didn't care to really like like invisibles. Like I didn't like a lot of the time I didn't know what was going on, but I was like I. But I know that there's I know that there is something going on. It's just it's going over right. my head right now. Like I'm the problem, <laughs> and right. this with Green Lantern, I felt that it was the problem. Yeah, yeah, I didn't. I didn't double back. I didn't re-examine anything. I just wanted to get through it, to be honest. Um, and I, yeah, I, I think that as a reader, you learn to pay attention to those signs about like what is engaging you even as you don't completely comprehend it and what you're just like, I don't care, man. No, <laughs> like, yeah, let's just yeah absolutely going. right. I mean, it's, like I said, I, I can't wait to get back to the Invisibles and to really digest it, really like like feast on it rather than just, mm -hmm. you know, shovel it down my throat like I sort of did. In the space of like a week. Um, but what a week. Their, their lack of passion for possibly, you know, the, the character and the story that, that they're writing, but perhaps like the format. And that's that's why this might be it for them as far as a traditional monthly title goes. And you'll only see them doing uh, four issue miniseries, which is what Superman and the Authority is or will be. Or yeah, maybe an original graphic novel like the Wonder Woman Earth exactly, series. Exactly, which, uh, which I, I, I want to dig into because it's I'd like to know. Uh, and that's why I also bought Superman and the Authority. I like to see what they have to say in in a in a format that's not that that's 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 more condensed than what 24 issues would be right and i, I think morrison tends to excel especially as they get older with compression and storytelling so i think that that probably is the better place for them um as they've gotten older, like when they were younger, they also were pretty proud of doing a lot of one and done stories instead of the long, you know, X-Men is the big exception to this uh, with the, and the Invisibles too, of course, with the sprawling epic. Um, but you, most of their best superhero work tends to be pretty condensed. And even Green Lantern, you could argue like most of the stories, I mean, there's a big story that's playing out across both seasons, but like most of the issues are a single story like told yep. from beginning to end, which was something that I admired about it, that it was, you know, that it was trying to go for that sort of silver age, uh, you know, pick up an issue and you've got the story, but you know, it just didn't, the, the content of the stories didn't work for me. Although I admired the formatting. 
But I mean that though that's our uh, review, I guess, uh, for Green Lantern season <laughs> one and two. Um, can't really give it a thumbs up, unfortunately, and it bums me out. It, 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 I me mean, too. if you're if you're a huge fan of Grant Morrison, uh, you'd probably already checked it out, or you probably will anyway, uh, being a completionist uh, like we are. But if uh, if you're looking for a Grant Morrison recommend, it definitely wouldn't be either one of these two series. Yeah, yeah. Um, but kudos to Liam Sharp with the amazing art. Uh, oh, yeah, I, I would recommend. Uh, so right now, Garth Ennis is doing a Batman miniseries with Liam Sharp called Reptilian. That's the sort um, of shit I'm into. Hell yeah. Yes. Yeah. I, I've, I've been buying the issues on Comixology as they come out and it's fucking gorgeous. So uh, I would definitely recommend anybody who's who enjoyed the Liam Sharp art. Go check that out. I mean, and also I'm a Garth Ennis fanboy, so that works out great for me. Um, that's double plus good. <laughs> well, we're going to open up the studio doors and allow a good friend of ours to walk in. Stepping into Fandom University Studios is Greg Carpenter. He is the author of The British Invasion, Alan Moore, Neil Gaiman, Grant Morrison, and The Invention of the Modern Comic Book Writer. How are you doing today, Greg? I am doing well. How about you? Good. Thank you very much. We wanted to talk to you about this book because obviously we're doing a series of episodes on Grant Morrison and their work. And when Sean and I were putting it together, Sean told me like, I've also got the perfect person we can, we can talk to because they literally wrote the book on Grant Morrison. <laughs> yeah. uh, in addition to Alan Moore and Neil Gaiman. And I love the, uh, I read a review of the book and the person reviewing it is like, it's such a brilliant idea like why didn't i think of it to write a book about these three authors and their their influence on the comic book industry so can you talk about the genesis of the book like what's your history with these three writers sure um i go back uh i go back to when they first started writing in america and i was i'm old enough to have been around then uh, so i was reading but i wasn't reading what you would call high high-end comics i was mostly reading tie-in tie-in materials like my comic of choice was uh, dc star trek at the time and i was i was heavily into star trek like i joked with one of my friends recently colin smith uh i was going through those issues it's the geekiest thing i can say about myself i was going through those issues counting how many words each character had per issue to see who was getting more screen time, if you will. Uh, it, yeah, so that's kind that's, of where that's I was. That's pretty geeky, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's bad. But that's kind of where I was at the time. And uh, what drew me in eventually, I was like ninth grade thereabouts. What drew me in were house ads. I kept seeing house ads. Sometimes they were for the Eagle Awards uh, that would have been given out for best comic, best writer, et cetera. And I would see things like Swamp Thing, number six or, or whatever. And I thought, well, that's strange. That doesn't sound like an award-winning comic book. <laughs> right, yeah. What do I know? I'm not reading that much. Um, but uh, I kept seeing the house ads, who watches the Watchmen and stuff. And so I, I started reading these, these three writers in particular, just as they were you know, uh, really making their presence known in America. First Swamp Thing issue I ever read was 56, I think it was. It's uh, If you know that run, it's in the latter stages of Moore's run 
uh, he's on the blue planet. Uh, he's traveling through space. It's my least favorite part of the whole Alan Moore run is the, is the right. space hopping stuff. But I remember getting that issue because I'd heard this guy's really good. This book's really good. And I got it and I read it and I was a little nervous because it had a label on it, sophisticated suspense, <laughs> which was code for not for kids, you know, at the time. And I remember reading it. And when I got done, I, I, I had two reactions. Reaction number one was, this really is something different. This is, uh, this, I can tell this is quality. This is deep and and my second response was i'm bored and i don't know what's going on because i'm not <laughs> i i wasn't ready for it quite frankly uh you know and we we run into stuff like that yeah uh and i just i wasn't there yet but i knew this was good and i could tell same sort of thing happened uh shortly around the same time watchman was getting all this buzz and so i pick up a random issue of watchman <laughs> Um, oh and, always a mistake yeah and so i'm i'm reading i don't have the slightest idea what's going on it's a little above me in terms of what i was i i, I read sports biographies you know uh, it, this was just a, a couple of steps beyond what i was ready for but there was a moment uh so i'm looking at this issue of watchman and there's this creepy guy being interviewed by a psychiatrist and Dave Gibbons gives us this close-up panel of the ink blot, you know, mm -hmm. that, he, that he holds up and uh, says, what does it look like? And the guy says something positive, a butterfly or something like that. And the next panel, of course, is a dog with its head split open. And I stared at that. I still had no idea what the story was about. I didn't get it. But I kept staring at that transition because I had never seen anything like that. I'm not talking about the violence or the gore. I'm talking about using the medium like that. Yep. They didn't do that in Star Trek. Uh, you know, they didn't do that in G.I. Joe. Uh, and it really, it really impressed me and it started to change my whole way of thinking. And so I'm, I'm desperately trying to grab up some of these Alan Moore books. And shortly thereafter, the floodgates opened and we have lots of new people coming in publishing things. And the first one who got my attention was Neil Gaiman uh, of the newcomers, because uh, there was a house ad. I know he tweets it every now and then, the original ad for Sandman. But I remember staring at it. And it's a, it was a big illustration of, uh, of Morpheus. And it's got a quote from T.S. Eliot on it that says, I'll show you fear and a handful of dust. And I stared at that and I thought, that's the kind of classy stuff I'm supposed to be reading, <laughs> uh, you know? And so I started reading that and Black Orchid and everything. I'll go ahead and apologize ahead of time because I'm used to writing about Morrison, but I'm not used to talking out loud about Morrison. And so the pronouns will get mixed up every now and then. So apologies ahead of time. Morrison I was a little slower on the first book of Morrison's that I was uh, that that I was introduced to was Animal Man, and I wasn't interested, uh, not at all. I had this real clear standard of what quality comics looked like, and they looked like horror, and they looked yep. dark fantasy. Animal Man is looks like a stereotypical traditional superhero story. It's bright. He's 
Yeah, like orangey yellow and blue costume. Garish almost. Yeah. Yeah. No. And I took one look and I thought, this is stupid. Uh, <laughs> not interested at all. And I just ignored it. And I was at a friend's house and the friend said, you know, he was raving about this Animal Man book. And I said, yeah, yeah, not really my style. I'm reading the question, you know, or whatever. I'm classy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's me. And well, uh, he he said, read this one story. And he hands me a floppy, right? And of course, you can imagine what it was. Uh, it had a coyote on the front. Uh, <laughs> And I sat down and I read, you know, my first page, I'm like, this is going to be stupid. I'm not interested. Obviously got into it and was, my mind was blown, you know, and uh, transformed in so many different ways. And I immediately said, okay, this is on the pull list for sure. And I started reading Animal Man. It was in the middle of the run. Uh, I think my first issue was 13, something like that about halfway through, but that whole arc culminating with Morrison's appearance at the end, I thought was the single most brilliant thing I'd ever seen in comics at the time. And uh, then Arkham Asylum was out at around the same time. And, uh, and those, those were my writers. And they stayed that way up until uh, I went to grad school, kind of drifted away from cotton, didn't drift away. I totally dropped comics uh, for financial reasons and there was no local comic shop. And so uh, no supply and no money means no <laughs> comics. Probably no time in grad school. They got plenty yeah. of reading to do anyway. And so I just drifted away. And of all things, it was Morrison. It brought me back. I was in, a, I think, a Walmart and uh, was, you know, I, I'm from the South. And so I'm in these rural areas and, you know, we didn't have local comic shops, but I'm in a Walmart and on the end cap, they had the little metal metal railing or whatever, and they had a comics display. And I paused for old time's sake, but I knew yeah. I, wouldn't, I wouldn't know any of the names or anything. And I'm looking down and they had uh, Justice League, JLA, right? And it was a number one issue. And it looked like all the old super friends from my childhood. You know, these were, this was the real Justice League. Wow. And, uh, I'm, I'm glancing and then I see the credits and I see Morrison's name and I think, huh, who else is named Morrison? Because I just assumed it was not gonna be Grant. And yeah. I opened up the, the opening title page, there they were, and I bought the issue and uh, got everyone after that. And the next thing I know, I'm back into comics again. Just like that. Yeah, yeah. And so I've kind of been with all three of them, you know, during this time. Uh, and uh, still got to go back during the writing process to pick up all sorts of things that I missed first time around. But um, I was going to ask yeah, if you'd been reading Zenith back, back mm, way back when, which I still haven't even read. Um, no, no. In fact, the only access I could have conceivably had to Zenith, I think, at the time was they did reprints uh, of uh, maybe the first series. Um, in in forms with like a, an issue that would have two or three like a digest yeah yeah that sort of thing they had done that but those weren't readily available you had to you had to have access to a comic book shop at the time so zenith was a discovery for me honestly it was a book by tim callahan one of sequart's first books uh that's on grant morrison called grant morrison the early years and I read that and I 
he talked a lot about Zenith and that put Zenith on my wish list to go track down and finally got to. And, you know, yeah, if you haven't read it, very much worthwhile. Yeah, well, we we're kind of spoiled in the modern age with comicsology and everything. Like it's it's yeah. all just there for the for the buying, um, you know. And even Sergio and I grew up, uh, you know, after the advent of trades. Like we were teenagers when the Grant Morrison JLA was running. So like it was it wasn't quite what it is now, but it was on its way there. So we we had access to things. I can only imagine trying to track down old Alan Moore swamp yeah. things in the 80s or early it was 90s. It a different world. It really was in terms of access. You, you would get excited over almost anything. You mentioned digests, for example. One of my favorite things to read because I, I found a bunch of them in a store, all for like 50 cents a piece, where DC published these little smaller size digests like Archie Comics does a lot of times. And mm -hmm. uh, they had some Neil Adams, Batman and Green Lantern stories. And that was like a gold mine because it, there was nothing, you know, Yeah, <laughs> it, it was the dark ages in a lot of ways. If you, especially if you weren't near a city. Right. So you kind of came along with them and then eventually you talk about reading the other Seacart book. Tim Callahan. Yeah. So at what point do you decide that you're going to write this book or have the conversation that results in this book? A little while after the Callahan book, uh, the Callahan book was one of those things that really changed my perspective. I was in academics and was a fairly conventional academic at the time. My, my specialty was drama and Shakespeare. And uh, I just, I, I wasn't aware that there were a lot of opportunities to do advanced scholarship on comics. I knew there were a few people working with with Spiegelman or, or Robert Crumb or Harvey Picar, some of the underground comics figures. But I had a student who loaned me this book by Tim Callahan. And uh, it, I just stared at it because I couldn't believe <laughs> anybody had published an entire book on genre comics. Uh, that's, that's what was so new to me. And uh, it, it started the wheels turning in my brain almost immediately. Uh, this is a thing people are doing, you really? And that started the process. And I started pivoting a lot of my, a lot of my work to pop culture. Uh, I started writing a little bit for Pop Matters, doing some book reviews. I actually interviewed Grant Morrison when Super Gods came out oh, and, nice. uh, and, and misquoted him, I think. I'm not sure. <laughs> uh, I, I should go ahead and say that interview, there's one line in the interview that has haunted me because I don't know if I misquoted it or not, but I think I did. Um, he's, uh, or, um, in talking about things, it, in reading Super Gods, uh, you get a lot of the tension between Morrison and Alan Moore uh, that comes out. But in reading Super Gods, I kept feeling like they were putting out an olive branch uh, at times for Alan Moore. That all blew up later that year but uh, little things that were complimentary. And I thought, okay, yeah, things are, things are smoothing out here. So when I interviewed them, uh, one of the things I asked about was the relationship with Moore. And uh, I asked, uh, I asked uh, it was kind of an awkward question, it doesn't really matter, about whether or not Moore was the super villain of super gods and, and Morrison was the superhero and that sort of thing. 
but uh, they said, no, no, no. And then they said, and if you'll forgive my, my accent or whatever, they said, uh, I'm just not a big fan of his. And given the tone of the book, I'm writing in my notes when I'm listening to the recording again, I'm now a big fan of his because I <laughs> la-da-da-da-da. <laughs> and went on, published it, never heard a word about it or anything. It's like five years later. I'm sometimes a little slow on the uptake. <laughs> uh, you know, you have those things where you wake up in the middle of the night and you're still going yep. worse neurotically like you're somebody from a Woody Allen movie. And I, I, I started replaying that and I thought, wait a minute. In a, I've read enough Star Trek. Uh, <laughs> NAE is not, uh, I'm not a big fan of his. And we dropped the T all together. And so I think looking back, I probably wildly misquoted without ever knowing it. Uh, because it sounded just like I'm now a big fan of his and I see good things in this. It just wasn't my taste, you know. Right. <laughs> I guess to answer your question, uh, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm going off subject. But um, I started writing for Pop Matters and got the idea that uh, I wanted to do a book and I wanted to do a book about comics because this was something you could do. And every time I, I had lists of topics and everything, Every time I would circle around, I kept going back to the same era, you know, the same time period, the transformational period of the 1980s, when for me, at least, I think almost everything changed uh, in terms of mainstream American comics. It's, it is for me what the 70s is to American cinema. Uh, it's, yep. it's just that moment. Um, and my original concept uh, also included Frank Miller, uh, who seemed to belong, but it was complicated uh, working with Miller and there was a neatness to, uh, to trimming it down to just three. With three UK people. Ex exactly. And uh, uh, you know, it, it, it gave the hook of the title, the British invasion, getting to use the song titles for the chapters <laughs> and everything. And yeah, uh, just seemed to make a certain amount of sense, uh, plus Miller is, uh, Miller's been less consistent uh, over his career, a lot more ups and downs, at least for me. Uh, yeah. And also, in addition to all of that, the fact that so much of what Miller would bring to things was tied in, tied directly into his art and the pacing and the, the synthesis between between his art and his writing just made it really messy to talk about. And I thought, this is the way to go. Uh, there were there are a lot of a lot more British writers to have included, but it's already five hundred pages. So <laughs> no, and I, I I think it's a it was a pretty wise decision to trim it down to like what I would say many consider to be the big three, um, and I think it's a pretty apt comparison comparing what was going on in the eighties with comic books to what was going on in cinema in the seventies. And no, like, like you said, it's, it's, it's revolutionary in the way that they use the medium. Like I've, I've told Sean many times that, you know, people lament comic book adaptations. Like if a comic book gets adapted into a movie or TV show, like, well, they changed this and this is different. Like by all change it. Like it's an adaptation. Make you make use of the medium you're using. And I can't think of, uh, you know, three authors that do it better 
than the three that you wrote about. Yeah, and whose work actually is pretty difficult to translate, I would say, to screen. Maybe not Gaiman so much, but definitely Moore and Morrison are pretty tricky uh, as far as adaptation goes. I think it, as we've seen from uh, Moore's work, especially getting uh, adapted by Hollywood, like we, I, I think earlier in the episode, we talked a little bit about the Watchmen movie and how it's sort of so slavishly faithful to that book, but at the same time, like just completely seems to lose, it seems soulless, I think is what Sergio said. Yeah, there's a, I remember, I remember reacting at one point. It was a strange experience watching that movie because I, w I was impressed they were uh, they were able to make anything at all uh, yeah. because it's 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 not a book made for movies. Uh, <laughs> you know, even yeah. though even though there was talk, I mean, there was talk about Robert Redford as Ozymandias and Burt Reynolds as the comedian and such, but uh, it's really tough to adapt. So I was impressed they were able to make it at all. But there was a moment when. Uh, you know, there's the one issue, uh, Fearful Symmetry, where you have all of the, the parallel images and everything. And uh, one of the things that he and Gibbons play with are all of the mirrors and reflections throughout that. And I'm watching the movie and we get to scenes in the caf cafeteria or the restaurant. And lo and behold, yes, we're seeing people in a mirror or in a reflection on a window. And I'm thinking, why? There's there's no payoff to that. There is in the comic, it makes it makes a certain amount of visual sense if you're playing with this whole little game of, of, of matching images and stuff. In the movie, it's just nonsensical. There's no reason to shoot it that way. Uh, but, but again, I try not to be too hard on it because I was shocked they were able to make anything at all. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I would agree. And I, I felt like the home video version where they were really able to kind of go in and put in some of the 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 pirate comic segments and stuff and like get the pacing of the book a little bit better did the movie a lot of favors uh, that that the theatrical just didn't. Um, but it was a, it was a surreal experience sitting in a crowd a filled movie theater yeah. watching a Watchmen movie like that was that was that was fucking weird. Um, <laughs> I was gonna say, well, speaking of adaptations, you know, like we, Sean brought up sort of like the um, troubled history with Moore's adaptations and uh, Gaiman has had, you know, he's had some success with like American Gods and, um, and they have, they have yeah. and, and Good Omens and they, uh, they have a Sandman TV show that's about to debut on, on Netflix. Right. You know, why do you think that, that Morrison's work, why do you think that they, that the work that they've created which would seem to be like as adaptable, if not more so even the, even their later work, because like you wrote in your book, it seems like they kind of course corrected, like they went revisionist simply because that was kind of like, that, that was what was in vogue and that's what I'm, that's what I'm going to do, he, they seem to say. And I guess right around the time they started working on JLA, they thought like, no, fuck it. I like superheroes. I like tights and flights and I, I, I love the mythology. This is what I want to do, but also make it smart. So, you know, why do you think like they haven't really made that jump or their, their properties, their work hasn't made that jump? In terms of the, uh, the journey of something from print to, to film or television has so many, so many landmines uh, from beginning to end that there's a certain amount of just statistical problems uh, that, that anyone's facing. 
I think to some extent also Morrison, um, when we talk about like these three, um, well, just to give you an example, whenever I tell somebody about the book, uh, I'll usually say, yeah, it's, it's about three comic book writers. And they'll say, oh, who? And I'll say, Alan Moore. There's you, and when I say I'm talking to people, I'm talking to people who are not into comics. Uh, right. These are people at, at college and that sort of thing. Uh, blank face with Alan Moore. And I'll say, uh, he wrote Watchmen and V for Vendetta. And they're nodding at that point. Oh, yeah, yeah. And uh, they've read something in the New York Times about him or whatever, right? And then I'll say Neil Gaiman. And about a third of them will nod immediately. And I'll say, he's, he, uh, you'd know him from uh, American Gods and uh, Coraline. And they're nodding at that point. And then I say Grant Morrison. And it's blank. <laughs> And part of it, I think, is that Morrison, uh, throughout their career, always had a little bit more difficulty transcending the medium. And I'm not sure how interested they were in transcending the medium, uh, to be honest. But um, uh, reaching that sort of audience, I think about it like this. Years ago, there was a publishing company that used to put out anthologies of individual writers. And it was called the portable, fill in the blank, the portable mm -hmm. Faulkner, yeah. the portable Hemingway, the portable Kerouac. And they were, they were kind of like greatest hits albums. You know, you'd have maybe a complete work in there and a lot of long excerpts from different mm -hmm. works and short yeah. stories. And it was a great way to give somebody else, uh, Ernest Hemingway, in one cheap paperback book and you get the Hemingway experience, right? Uh, at least the, the, the shorter version of it. And in a lot of ways, Morrison's comics work, I think is not as portable as Moore and Gaiman's has been in the sense that I can give somebody Watchmen, I can give somebody V for Vendetta or From Hell and it's a fully contained clear story it's also you know these are some of his highlights you know of his entire career him at his very best self-contained books that work for almost anybody if they like the subject material Gaiman you can do much the same with Sandman or Mr. Punch nobody talks about but Mr. Punch is one of my favorites uh with Morrison or even their novels exactly exactly with Morrison uh, what if you say one of Morrison's bigger hits in recent years was uh, he had a run on Batman. Morrison's Batman is not portable. Uh, no. <laughs> you know, it's from, if you're a, uh, if you're kind of an anal retentive completist, you know, I want everything in a box neat and it's a mess. It's all over the place. It's like five different titles and restarts and numberings and the invisibles is hard to follow as well in terms of, handing it over to this person who doesn't read comics and letting them just step in and appreciate it as a book. Uh, it's there, there aren't as many portable masterworks from, from Morrison. And I think that may be one of the reasons why their work has, has been uh, extraordinary within the medium, but very rarely seems to get outside of the medium in the same way. But that's just a theory. I think that's a, 
pretty good theory, actually, because yeah, that the invisibles would be the only thing, because even if you're handing over their JLA run in trades, there are guest issues written by other creators throughout. Um, And, you know, as much as I love that run, it's, you know, um, still very much superhero comics, you know, it's not, it's not like Watchmen where you could hand that over and like, you know, it's clearly a work of literature wearing tights. Um, whereas Morrison seems to kind of lean more into like, no, I like the tights. Let's, you know, uh, what's fun about this is that it's not real. Um, but um, yeah, I, right. I, that's a, that's an excellent point. And, and um, something Sergio had actually brought up. Oh, I just, and talking about like, you know, Hollywood more or less, you know, Grant Morrison recently ventured into TV production with Brave New World, which wasn't, got lukewarm reviews, ended up getting canceled by Peacock after one season. Uh, I think part of that deal was also supposed to bring the Invisibles to um, to TV, which I haven't, I, you know, Google searched and couldn't find anything beyond the initial announcement three years ago. Yeah. Uh, You know, do you think that might be the future for Morrison? Do you think that that they might be done completely with traditional monthly titles? I have felt like uh, they may be they may be nearing the end, uh, you know, and I think everybody, most creative uh, people in comics eventually hit a point where they feel like they've burned out or they've, they've told most of their stories or, or just the, the fashion and trend of the industry, you know, has pivoted on them a little bit. Uh, and I've gotten the impression because they've slowed down in terms of production uh, mm-hmm. of comics and they have been doing different things like television and you know i i think i think it would be the goal uh right now at least uh television has a lot of similarities in terms of the storytelling and the way they handle narrative to serial comics uh mm-hmm. and i think there's a there's a natural relationship there that frankly i don't even think is there with with film even though marvel's been successful marvel's been successful basically doing television on movie screens there there's they're more akin to tv shows and movies i i think so and i think it's a it's a natural sort of switch uh it's just it's a lot tougher to be successful in television uh i think you know than than it is for somebody to build up an audience in comics uh there's so much more money, so, so many more people involved. You can have something like you mentioned uh, with Brave New World where you've got a recognizable title, a built-in audience, uh, the show comes on. It's pretty good, It's uh, or at least I, th- I thought so. Uh, pretty good, just not life-changing. And boom, it's done in a season because mm-hmm. can't keep that investment rolling. Right. Well, you know, in the same way they could have had a a comic of the same quality go for four or five years probably so i think there's a lot of interest in making a transition to to, um, television in particular and there are a lot of possibilities it's just not something that i think anyone has an expectation of snapping their fingers and making it happen it's just too tough Uh, and so we'll wait and see you know if if there are more successes you know, in the future or not, I would, I would be, be certainly happy uh, to see it. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, you talk about uh, in the early chapters of Super Gods that Morrison sort of seems embarrassed almost to be working with superheroes, like uh, that Superman shows up for two pages and it's awkward as hell. But then you've got Morrison's book in 2011, Super Gods, which was sort of a, you know, we've referred to it on this show for me multiple times as a sort of a holy text. Like it was one of those books that just kind of blew the top <laughs> of my head off and got me back right. into superheroes and comics. And Morrison really plays up a lifelong attachment to the superheroes in that book. And so, which sort of seemed a little bit at odds with um, your portrayal. So I'm wondering if you think that, you know, that's a little bit of self-mythologizing on their part sort of just to help sell the idea of the book across time rather than showing the evolution of a, of a feeling or, um, you know, just how, how you see that difference? Because you clearly incorporate elements of super gods into the British invasion. Oh, yeah. I think it's a little of all the above, at least the way I see it. Uh, it's a little bit all the above. Uh, I think they definitely have had a lifelong connection to superheroes. And I think it's very possible to love the genre, have a real connection to the genre, and still not necessarily want to write the genre when you're trying to establish yourself as a serious writer who, yeah. who's going to, and you, you sit down uh, to write. And the industry also, I think if you could go back to what things were like in the, the middle 1980s, uh, the time of Crisis on Infinite Earths and that sort of thing. There was so much focus on continuity. There was so much baggage attached to all of these various characters uh, at the time, at least when, you know, we look back, I think at times at what happened in series like Crisis on Infinite Earths and tend to talk about, oh, they're just rebooting again, or they're just, they're just killing off people to kill off people. There was a strong sense that at least for many, for many readers, there was a strong sense that things were broken uh, in the industry. And it was almost this, this incestuous self-feeding industry with fans writing for fans and fans drawing for fans. And every, every comic mainly had to do with a comic that came eight years earlier. Uh, right. And you know, that, that was the text and the subtext. And, right. That was the world. And so when, when somebody like Morrison shows up and starts writing, they're interested in a lot of different things. They're interested in physics. They're interested in magic in a serious way, not just, I want to have Houdini in my book or something. But, <laughs> uh, you know, they're interested in a lot of different subjects, history, literature, uh, trying, to, trying to politics, religion. Uh, changing, changing sexual mores and what have you. They've got a lot of things they want to write about and they're looking at an industry and even though they may have loved Superman stories for their whole life, here's this goofy guy in a red cape and what am I supposed to do with him? And this is, why am I trying to tangle? So I think it's very possible to be the person that they describe themselves as in Super Gods lifelong devotee of superheroes, but still being really timid maybe, or uh, I can't come up with the right word. Uh, I guess a little gun shy to, yeah. to try to tackle that when it's it seems like, you know- the, It's not the cool thing to do. 
Exactly. Like, you know, like I said, mid 1980s, Alan Moore is cool. Neil Gaiman is cool. You know, Frank Miller is cool. So right. I'm going to sort of not, you know, ape their style, but go, go with the flow more or less. And it wasn't until they had a little bit more artistic cachet after they had proven so I can, I can be successful. I can write successful comics that, you know, they got the chance to do JLA kind of, you know, put my, um, not obsession, but my, uh, my fondness for them on display. And a, a lot of that also, I think, times out with the, the sort of near-death experience yeah, that, uh, that they underwent in the mid-1990s and um, the vision or the, the abduction or mm -hmm. whatever terminology we want to put on it. But those, uh, those experiences that happened at that low point in their life uh, also helped for how to view the superhero genre as a writer, as a real window into writing about all these different things that one might have been interested in in the first place. Uh, and so I think that played a pretty big impact in that shift to uh, let's just stop worrying and love the superhero uh, that we start to see uh, yeah. after that point. But prior to that, what, what I see and what I still see are lots and lots of books within the superhero genre where Morris and the writer is working really, really hard not to write superhero stories, you mm -hmm. know? And I think, yeah, for what you're saying in terms of definitions of cool and whatnot, uh, there, was, there was a lot of reason not to want to write superhero stories, you know, at that time. And I guess that's sort of a good leapfrog into my, my JLA question, because you mentioned, you know, finding JLA number one on the uh, grocery store rack, which is a heck of a find, by the way. <laughs> um, and, you know, that, that was, I think, mine and Sergio's introduction to Grant Morrison. And that was sort of the first non-Batman family DC book that I got really, really into and like collected month to month. Um, but you don't spend a whole lot of time on it in the British invasion. And I was kind of curious about uh, the reasoning why just because it was sort of such a, a watershed moment in their career, or maybe it isn't. And I'm just sort of have fanboy rose colored glasses because that was my book, you know? It, there, I've, I've thought about that. Uh, there are several things I think that are playing into that because it was a, it was, as I said, if I'm writing my comic book biography, it's a huge chapter uh, because that's the book that drew me back. At the same time, um, so I guess reason number one, if I'm if I'm gonna I'm gonna give you several reasons, you can A B C D. <laughs> uh, but reason A would be when I was in the book, uh, I felt a little too close personally to that particular book in terms of my own biography, and I wasn't sure that I was seeing it with very clear eyes, uh, and was having more trouble coming up with things to say about it. Uh, you know, that's, I, it's not like I was saying, oh, it's a holy grail. It's just, I looked at it and it was like a family member as opposed to this really cool book I read. Uh, right. And so it's a little harder to write about. And that's one explanation. Another is in, in researching the book, trying to go through, and I, of course, nobody could be 
specific. I'm still jumping around in the timeline, but in writing the book, trying to go somewhat chronologically through reading things. And when I got to the point where JLA was, was coming up, I was reading Flex Mentallo, which I think is one of his masterpieces. That's, it's portable, except it's really, it's a tough read, you know, first time through, because it's dense right. uh, in terms of, of stuff going on. But Flex Mentallo, and then the beginning of The Invisibles, both of those are taking place in the mid nineties. Both of those for me are aesthetically among Morrison's highest peak point points as a writer. And then comes JLA. And in comparison, it seemed, oh, I'm gonna make enemies here, <laughs> but it seemed shallow on, on, on some level to me. I couldn't figure out what's the really, what was the draw here besides, besides the fun, it's fun. Right. It's a very fun run. Uh, and I, in fact, just to, just to give you an example, after the Snyder's Justice League, you know, cut, uh, after watching that, I got down the first two volumes of, of the Morrison JLA run and reread them and was surprised. I enjoyed every page of it. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's very fun, but there's kind of a, it's kind of a bubblegum quality fun, uh, for yeah. me at least. And I don't know. It's like a really good pop song. Exactly. It's, pop, it's still a pop song. Exactly. I mean, but it, it's structured very well. It's, it's production is very good, but yeah. it's still pop. And I don't know what to say about it, to be honest. Uh, the, um, the other thing, the answer C that would come with it would be um, probably personal taste or whatever. When I see what it inspired, uh, I feel distant from its children, uh, if that makes sense. Uh, the the sort of widescreen approach. Mm -hmm. Let's have lots of team books with lots of splashy art and lots of cosmic storyline. That's not my wheelhouse. Uh, I mm -hmm. love the JLA run. Right. I love the JLA run. But the things that came in its wake and uh, the sort of the sort of let's go back and do uh, reverential superheroes and and everything. Uh, I'm more from the deconstructionist tradition. I like taking these characters, cutting them down to their core, figuring out what they would really be like uh, if they were real, and then focus it. That's what speaks to me the most as a reader, not the mythologizing sort of, sort of approach. And that's what came after JLA to a great extent and uh, left me a little bit cold. So number one, it's a little too personal not that objective. Number two, I couldn't quite figure out what to say about it because it seemed very surface level. And then number three, it it helped inspire a movement that didn't speak to me very much, you know? And so I think right. for all those reasons, I just kind of moved on and I would have rather talked about the Invisibles and Flexman Tallow when I'm I in mean, the 90s. Yeah. Yeah, well, here it, uh, I can also say that recording the show, you know, we've read a lot of Grant Morrison over the last six <laughs> weeks, like a ton. Um, and I think we actually had less to say about JLA than we had to say about even their run on X-Men or The Invisibles, like all the other texts that we've decided to talk about. We had more to say about them, even as much as like you, I find those comics, like those are sort of like 
you know, the fertile crescent for me as a reader, you know, that's, that's, that, right. that was where it was like, oh my gosh, this is yeah. exactly what I've been waiting for in a comic book. Um, you know, after years of characters like Bloodwind and, and yeah. Guy Gardner and the Justice League, sure. you know, you actually sure. have a Justice sure. League with Superman and Batman and Wonder Woman. Um, right. So I, 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 that, that makes perfect sense. And I think that you do spend the time more wisely for a 500 page book, which by the way, reads very quickly for anybody listening who hasn't read the book yet and is thinking about it. It is, if you're at all interested in this subject matter, it is a book that just flies by. I would read a hundred pages in one sitting by accident saying like, okay, I need to read 20 pages of this today, you know, and like scheduling out my reading to make sure I'd be done by the time we recorded. And I finished like a week and a half early because of that. Anyway, um, big fan, obviously. <laughs> I want to say your reason C talking about, um, it sounds like the reason that you didn't like JLA is, is exactly what Morrison did with all-star Superman. He was able to deconstruct Superman in such a way to like figure out exactly who the character is while, while also mythologizing the character and giving you that whole lot of fun. Like, how do you, how do you feel about that? I, I, I think, I think there's some truth in that all-star Superman for me is, uh, um, resonates a lot more. Um, and again, it's, it, I'm hearing myself here and it sounds like I'm just bashing JLA. You even the phrase why you didn't like JLA. And it's like, no, 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 no. I, <laughs> But yeah, I don't, I don't know how to write about bubblegum, uh, you know, and, and I may be wrong in seeing it as bubblegum too. Uh, it's just all I, all I can see is the bubblegum right now. Uh, right. But All-Star Superman has more, uh, for me, has more humanity in it, uh, really cuts to, the, cuts to the core, finds the, finds the myth, celebrates the myth, but also makes it real in ways that those retro stories that it's based on never quite could for me as a yep. reader. You don't have moments with, uh, and Morrison does so much with so little. Uh, he and Quietly, or they and Quietly in yeah. that book, uh, they do so much with so little. Two, three panels uh, of the, uh, the confrontation with Reagan, the girl, Who's, mm-hmm. uh, the goth girl who's suicidal. Yes. Yeah. I, we we talk about that passage from that book, and it's become so iconic. And yet you go back; it's one page of a thick book, uh, one <laughs> right. page. But they're able to put so so much punch into these little bitty moments like that, or like when um, Superman goes back in time and is having that last conversation with his father. Yeah. out on the field and telling him everything's going to be okay and i'm going to get choked up now just talking about it no yeah it's it's great it's fantastic i mean it's it's i've got friends who are somewhat into comics and like they're like captain america i, I can't get into him superman i can't get into him and i can understand because like what they've seen in the mainstream haven't been very good superman stories right Right. But morrison seems to understand the superman character better than just about every, any writer that I've seen write Superman. Yeah. And, and, and the scene you're talking about, that if you think about it, if I think about it too much, I'll also get choked <laughs> up. 
bunch of grown people weeping about a Superman story, but uh, it's a good Superman story. It really, it's the best, I think. Uh, yeah, I would me. agree. Uh, for me, it's it's certainly the the Superman story, and it's one of those one of those Morrison books that I would hold up and say portable. This yeah, is this is absolutely. one of. I've actually used it in classes before, uh, and uh, it's it's much more accessible uh, than um, than so many other things uh, for a for a non a non comics audience. Yeah, I, one thing I've noticed about Morrison's work that that surprised me when I first started reading anything outside of JLA was how a lot of it, like their Batman run, for example, doesn't always make sense the first time you're reading it. Like oh, I can see no. why people hated Batman RIP, <laughs> but when I went back and reread the whole run, you know, from beginning to end and started noticing like, okay, this refers back to this page here, or even, you know, also including Final Crisis, um, and I still can't make it all fit together, but like you start to see the the resonances between scenes or ideas that get planted in one place and come into play three years later, you know, in like one panel or something. Um, mm -hmm. And just the fact that they're allowed to do that in a big mainstream, the biggest title DC had is kind of amazing that they got away with it for as long as they did before they sort <laughs> of got new 52 kind of shunted <laughs> Batman incorporated to the side and moved Scott right. Snyder to the, uh, to the main line or headliner position. But as far as portability goes, it's, it's not an easy read. I mean, Alan Moore is dense, but I feel like I'm very rarely at a loss for what's going on. Right. Um, whereas Morrison at their most esoteric or, or, or like, synapse is firing like you know a billion a second um it's it's more like i have no idea what i'm looking at um and and for i think a lot of readers they're not gonna have the patience to be like i'm not gonna go to this much work for batman you know um <laughs> well but you know i i said i've used all-star superman in uh, in classes most frequent response every time is I couldn't tell what was going on. Really? <laughs> yeah, and I know we, when you're talking, we're like, huh. this is as accessible as it gets. <laughs> but when you go back page by page, and again, it's dispiriting to look at a class of 25 freshmen and uh, 24 of them have never read a comic book before, but that's the world we live in. Uh, but when they start reading, you're in the first couple of pages and you've got the the creature that's like the human bomb up in the up in the spaceship mm -hmm. and Lex Luthor supplying the dialogue and they have no idea what's going on it's it's almost jarring you know and uh, you have to take them panel by panel you know and walk them through and start to start to let them get up to speed but Morrison is when I the word I use and it may not even be the right word but the word I often use is dense in terms of he's so uh, they're so compact in terms of what they put into a panel how much information is taking place how much action is taking place i always laugh at the fact that martian manhunter gets killed in a tiny little panel of final <laughs> crisis i read the book and didn't realize it happened uh you know i had yeah. to i saw some reference and had to go and say wait a minute that's what that what okay <laughs> He's okay, dead. Now I get it. Now I get it. Um, 
so so compact, so dense, and so much given. This is what you were saying. So much given to uh, the long game in terms of I'm going to lay a seed for this story in issue number nine. Two weird panels that will make no sense at all, and then in issue number twenty-two, I'm going to bring it back up like you remembered it, uh, and right. you did or you didn't, you know. And it's one of the reasons why for me, Morrison has benefited tremendously from trades. Because in the pre-trade world, where these are in 30-day installments, and uh, at least I would lose almost everything, uh, you know, from mm-hmm. one issue to the next. And yeah. even with that JLA run, uh, every time a new issue came out, I would go back and read two or three issues prior because it was, it was necessary uh, to get back into that world and to, to really pick up on a lot of the references that were going on. Very dense, very compact. Flex Mentallo, you can spend. Have, have y'all have y'all read Flex Mentallo? Have y'all talked about that? No, I have. I have it. I have not read it yet. Yeah. Um, but it uh, after reading your book, I'm even more excited to go back to it. So well, it's one of those you read it slowly uh, because panel by panel by panel, there's so there's so much to appreciate. Uh, you know, and you have to put on all the brakes. And if you start skimming through like a lot of times we do when we read, you have no especially idea. Especially read comics. Yeah, yeah, especially. You have no idea what's going on uh, yeah, at that, all. I had to find myself, I mean, I've been reading comics for 30 years now and I've kind of, I know the tip, I know the tricks, I know the tools of the trade and I can kind of, you know, skim through them and reading Invisibles, Morrison demanded my attention. He's like, no, you're not going to pull that, pull that bullshit on me. Like you're going <laughs> to, you're going to have to pay attention. Otherwise you're going to be lost. And there are plenty of times where like, I kind of don't know what's going on right now. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. No, the invisibles is, is a real challenge at times. Now, I, I, I was just going to say, I wonder if Morrison and part of why Morrison has, I mean, some of it may be chance, but part of why Morrison maybe hasn't made the leap the same way some of the works of Moore or Gaiman has is because Morrison is of the three in a lot of ways the most comic book of the comic those three comic book writers like understanding the visual vocabulary and relying on that in a way that Moore and Gaiman are like novelists who happen to write comic books you know whereas Morrison to me is very much a comic book writer you know first and foremost if that makes sense yeah I think that would probably especially be true with Gaiman um to um you know Gaiman always wanted to be a comic book writer when he was in high school but for me uh Gaiman's strengths have never been plot uh it's never been uh you know a carefully structured sort of story it's mood it's tone he does mood better than anybody I've ever read and I can read one page of a Gaiman book and feel like I'm in very good hands. Uh, but that very easily translates to prose. Uh, you know, and he can, it can, it translates to nonfiction essays. He writes a better introduction, I think, to a book <laughs> than anybody else in the business. Uh, he's just got this magic sort of touch in terms of tone and mood and, and that's the real skill. But each of them, I, f- I forgot your original question, but um, for me, each of them have different different talents. One of the questions I'd often get was, which one do you think is the better writer? And it's like, no, 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 no. Uh, they <laughs> do different things and uh, they do different things very well. More is more about architecture. 
uh, he's mm. he's building a, a literary universe, you know, uh, with a story with themes that that touch on all different sorts of issues and everything. Morrison does some of that as well in terms of planting those seeds and everything. But Morrison, for me at least, is also almost obsessed with translating concepts and ideas into narrative. Uh, that's not something you're going to get from Gaiman at all, uh, right. <laughs> or at least not much. Uh, just interested in very different things, doing very different things. So Morrison has to rely maybe more on the visual vocabulary of the comic book than, like, as far as what their talent is. You know, whereas Moore can do that architecture also in a book like Jerusalem. <laughs> you know, uh, which is entirely prose, which someday I'll finish reading, <laughs> um, which sounds actually a lot like big numbers, which I'd never heard of before I read okay. your book, but okay. we can get into that okay. in our Alan Moore arc someday. I really want to talk to you about Alan Moore, but uh, I know we're running short on okay. time and uh, okay. we're here for Morrison, but um, um, let's see. So we talked about TV. Oh, uh, well, I guess maybe as a general question, um, as we're kind of winding down because I think we've we've tackled most of the big stuff I wanted to ask about um how do you feel personally about the fact that vertigo first of all that Karen Berger left vertigo and then that vertigo kind of went away and now we have DC black label in its yeah. place they're they're not the same um, no they're not the same and and black label strikes me and I haven't read a lot of it so I'm not I'm not judging the stories themselves just from the publishing end of things, seems much more of, of an attempt to just continue to develop intellectual properties uh, and make them viable for other things and, and that sort of thing. The stories may be great, I'm not, I'm not questioning that, but they're mostly the licensed characters uh, right. in those books. Vertigo was much more uh, a, a publishing imprint for, there was a little bit of monotony to it in terms of tone and style, but it was a place for ambitious, ambitious, mature comics to go. And uh, there were a few, there were a few titles that were tied into, to the DC universe, but almost, almost all of them were, were new. For sure. The Invisibles, Transmetropolitan, whatever, they were their own little preacher, their own universe. And essentially what Image is doing, you know, or does at times now. Right. Um, and, and that was Vertigo. And that's a real loss coming from a company that has the kind of publishing legs that, that DC has access to and the ability to put books on shelves all over the country and all over the world. Uh, I hate to see that gone. Uh, yeah. And, and the cachet that just Sandman by itself gives them, you know, as a, as a publisher, as, as a, uh, you know, for Vertigo um, and the, you know, sort of grown-up respectability that they brought to it. Um, that, that's fair. Um, I also wanted to ask if there's anything you're currently reading, uh, comics or books, that's really like stuff that's a little more current maybe that uh, is really exciting to you right now. Most of, most of my reading is through the through the, the websites, the DC uh, Infinite and um, uh, Marvel, um, whatever. Unlimited. Yeah, Unlimited. So I'm always six months behind or more uh, <laughs> in terms of what's coming out with the monthlies and that sort of thing. 
the the in terms of writers, the one who uh, stands out to me the most, and uh, uh, the the book I'm anticipating the most. I haven't read a word of it yet. Is the Strange Adventures, uh, Tom King? Uh, yes. I know. I you know the way things work in comics. I uh, and I'm gauging everything anecdotally through social media, so it may be skewed, but. Uh, the trendiness of the industry right now seems to prop people up for a short period of time and then tear them down. And mm -hmm. right now, every time I see a reference to him uh, in my in my feed, it's somebody bashing him for one reason or another. So I don't know. But uh, the Vision miniseries and the Mr. Miracle miniseries in particular were two of the most striking things and portable, <laughs> to use that phrase. Yes. Uh, things that I've seen published from the mainstream companies in quite a while. Um, the uh, I felt like I felt like I was back reading the British Invasion writers again when I read both of those. I was going to say that was a quote that in your book that I I meant to bring up, and I'm glad you said that because it reminded me of it. You said that people who read comics don't want to read the types of comics that they read when they were 12. Right. They want to read comics that give them the same feeling <laughs> right. that the comics did at, when they were 12. And I, I read that and I'm like, absolutely. Like, I don't, you know, I don't want to read Spawn comic books anymore. But when I was reading them, I felt like I was, mm -hmm. like I was developing and growing my, my tastes you know, and it was, it ended up being sort of a, a gateway to the Moors, to the Gaimans, to the Morrisons. And, you know, like I said, like, I read that and I thought that that was so brilliant. And so it's, it, if for anyone who like grew up, you know, was a kid reading comics and still as an adult read comics, that's the exact feeling I felt I, that I think that, that everyone has. Yes, I, that is an incredibly wise uh, bit in a book full of uh, great lines. That one definitely stuck with me. Um, speaking of, are you currently working on, um, I know you do some writing for pop art. Are you working on another book? Or is there a place where uh, readers who are sort of interested in keeping up with you would be well advised to kind of keep their eyes on? I have a project I'm working on right now. I'm actually working on it in collaboration with somebody else. I'm not sure that we're allowed to say a whole lot yet, but okay. it involves comics uh, and it involves a superhero genre. Uh, and that's kind of what I'm in the middle of right now. That's a, a book that will be, you know, within the next year or so, um, uh, we'll be finishing up and putting out. I'm not writing regularly online right now. I'm, well, my teaching duties are mostly occupying my time but I did a, I did a column for Sequart for uh, almost two years, a weekly column. And as I, I jokingly say, it nearly killed me. Uh, <laughs> I'm not a blogger. I'm not fast. Uh, some people I know can spit out 1200 words in an afternoon and it, it reads well and is insightful and everything. <laughs> and I look at them and I just start salivating because it took me the whole week to get the 1200 words out. And I was, still beating myself up over it and then had no topic for next week you know as, soon right. as, as and like i have to do it all over again <laughs> well there was you know there was an aaron sorkin show studio 60 a few years ago and uh, mm -hmm. matthew perry mm -hmm. was writing for like an snl type show and he was the really the only writer 
and he had in the writing room this big digital countdown clock like they would use at NASA. <laughs> and uh, as soon as the live show started on whatever night it was that it would air, he pressed the clock and it said six days, 23 hours, 59 minutes and start counting down. That's what it felt like with the column. And it just nearly killed me. Uh, but uh, but yeah, this this other book I'm I'm excited about, but I just I don't think I can talk about it a whole lot yet. No worries. Yeah, we look forward to it. Um, we've been talking with Greg Carpenter. He wrote a book about Alan Moore, Neil Gaiman, and Grant Morrison called The British Invasion, Alan Moore, Neil Gaiman, Grant Morrison, and the Invention of the Modern Comic Book Writer. Uh, before we let you go, um, just to sort of wrap this up, if you had to sum up Morrison's overall effect or impact on mainstream comic books, how would you do so? Elevation. Um I don't have a I don't have a canned sentence for you, but elevating uh, popular genres uh, in ways that that hardly anyone else was capable of doing, uh, letting us see extraordinary complexity and, and subtext uh, in stories that originally were designed to entertain children many years ago. Um, something along those lines, uh, able to put more, more complexity into these genre stories. So I'd say that's, that's pretty apt. And I'd say that, you know, whereas, um, you know, more, I guess his, his, um, his dreams and aspirations lay outside of comic books as did Gaiman's Morrison, you know, sort of like, this is what I like to do. This is what I love. I'm going to continue doing it. And I'm going, and, and as I rise to the top, by God, I'm going to take these with me, these funny books with me. <laughs> right, right. And, and I think they have dragged those funny books to the, to the top of the mountain many times. Well, Greg, thank you so much for joining us. This is uh, longer than I thought. I mean, no, no. And it's, it's great because, and our interviews usually do because we're, in, we're talking to folks who are as passionate about these subjects as we are. And so like we're talking, um, with Crystal Leary Davidson about Batman Arkham Asylum. Yeah. And I told, I, and I eventually we had to stop talking because I was like, I could, we could talk about this book all night long. <laughs> and when we get to uh, Moore and Gaiman, we'd love to have you back to, to sort of dig into those two as well, if you're available when the, when the time comes. Uh, I would be happy to, but yeah, I ramble. So I apologize. Oh, no, no, you were, oh, no, you were no. wonderful. <laughs> this no, was amazing. I, I, yeah, I had a blast. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. I enjoyed it too. Oh man, I could have talked to Greg for hours, to be honest with you. Like I, no, I, 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 yeah. I, yeah, I, uh, yeah, absolutely. I, I'm surprised we kept it as short as we did. Um, just like our interview with Crystal Larry Davidson, that I felt like we could have just talked about Batman or talked about Grant Morrison for hours and hours on end, but who has that kind of time? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, you literally had another show to record that night, so we I couldn't, did. yeah, did. so yeah, for. For those of you listening uh, and don't know, I am now the new co-host of the Dungeons and Dragons Lorecast on Robots Radio. Uh, myself and my co-host, Crit, uh, aka Aaron, uh, we will be discussing the lore behind Dungeons and Dragons. We'll be discussing the latest releases from Wizards of the Coast. We will be bringing up some homebrew stuff. We will be talking about how to uh, min-max characters and also role-play characters. 
subclasses, all that sort of stuff. So if you're into Dungeons and Dragons, definitely take uh, take a look at that. I, I I would greatly appreciate it. Yeah, yeah, this is a very exciting uh, thing, uh, and yeah, everybody here on the um, Fandom University side is very very excited about this. And everyone uh, on the Fandom University campus, yes, is very excited, and uh, we we hope you guys will check that out. Uh, do yourselves and uh, Sergio a favor, and me, because I'm Sergio's friend and I care about him and I want good things for him. Yeah, if you guys don't listen, I'm going to be pissed off and I'm going to be calling Sean all the time, yelling, and he doesn't need that in his life. And crying. Yeah. Yelling yeah. and crying. And then like, I don't need them anyway. I don't give a fuck. I don't care. <laughs> like, it's that, it's a whole roller coaster of emotions. And, and, and Sean doesn't need that in his life right now. He's about to sell a second book and about to start the whole, that whole process over again and going on book tours. He doesn't, he doesn't need me crying, calling him, texting him, crying, yelling, cussing. <laughs> he doesn't need it. Um, yeah, yeah, who think- has the time? Who has, who, no one has, a who time has the for time for unhappiness? Who has a time for anything? Yeah, happiness or unhappiness, I guess. That's fair. I mean, yeah. I mean, the happiness of talking about Batman and Grant Morrison for hours on end. Who has the time for that? Nobody. Not us. Who has the time to you know, respond to crying, angry text messages and phone calls from friends? Nobody. No, yeah, nobody. Nobody. That's why all of us feel so alone because we don't take enough time to Wait, this is going a different direction. <laughs> well, that that and yeah. the elder that and the uh, the old one Cthulhu. That's also why we feel so alone. But that's another arc that we'll right. get into. Yes, <laughs> stay tuned for our great old ones arc, uh, <laughs> where we have unveil the the secret truth at the heart of the universe, and it is ugly. It's nasty and gross and octopus like. Thank you so much for listening. We will be back in a couple of weeks with the first episode of our Michael Myers and Laurie Strode arc. We'll be discussing the Halloween movies, the originals. Yeah. I mean, Sean's a, Sean is the one who introduced me to the Halloween movies 20 years ago, 20, year, 20 plus years ago, almost 25 years ago. And you like scary movies? And I was like, I guess. Like, <laughs> this is my favorite scary movie. And we watched Halloween. I was like, holy shit, that was fucking awesome. You're like, there's like six of them now. And I'm like, what? We need to watch them all. And you're like, all right, slow down. They're not all of them that great. But yeah, uh, none of them touched the first one, but they're still good fun. And I have a box set of the first 10 movies on my mantle. So I am a big fan of the series. As am I. So just in time for spooky season, we will be talking about those Halloween movies. So please join us in a couple of weeks. So join us for our spookiest, dookiest arc yet. My name is Sergio. Mine is Sean. Be kind to yourself and to others.